Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everyone. Jeremy Scheinwald here with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Today, our guest is Mike Rothman, co-founder of Fatherly, a parenting resource for men and a community of fathers who are not the type who drive Oldsmobiles and smoke pipes. I'm not sure those exist anymore at all, actually, but I think you can catch my drift. These are dads who can laugh at pieces like... Quote, these photos of preschoolers stupefied by television will make you throw your TV out the window or everything you need to know about parenting in eight Snoop Dogg quotes. Mike spent his life in media um, since graduating from Brown. He was one of the first employees at Thrillist and helped grow their revenue from zero to $100 million. Let's find out about how Mike plans to do the same at Fatherly. But first, a word about our podcast. The podcast is produced by, and you're going to have to catch your breath after this in shock, Venture for America, a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize American cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit ventureforamerica.org. A little bit about me, your host. I launched the Mission Driven Group many moons ago. Check out my firm at missiondrivengroup.com. And please remember to like the show on iTunes and to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Scheinwald. And now a word about our sponsors. Um, Smart People Should Build Things is brought to you by Wix.com. A great web presence is essential to running a successful business. If you have a new idea or just need to upgrade your website, check out Wix.com. Wix has something for everyone with hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from. You're not a coder? No problem. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Used by more than 77 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You can go to Wix.com and sign up for an entirely free account today. No credit card required. It's easy and the result is stunning. Go to Wix.com today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Happy to be here. I so it's my podcast. It's, it's you know it's my podcast. I do it for Venture for America, but I get to design the questions. And to me, something I was desperate to dive into, and I'll try not to dominate the podcast with it, is you rode your bike across the country, which is something that is I think one of like two things that's on my bucket list, maybe yeah. uh, from from New York to L.A. Um, in honor of your aunt's memory. Um, obviously, like a pretty reflective journey. Um, 
But I'm wondering, like, you know, this was at the start of your career. I'm, I'm curious if this is something that, like, you'd come back to as a source of strength at, as you start your own venture and, and get it off the ground. You're like, well, during this tough day, like, I know that I could bike across the country so I can make it through another day at Fatherly. Yeah, so this was in uh, June of 2005, and the impetus uh, was it, my my aunt's unfortunate uh, passing, uh, and actually around the same time, my little brother from the Big Brothers Big Sisters program was incarcerated, and it so happened that my aunt was involved with inner city education in Minneapolis, so kind of the twain uh, met, and in order to kind of honor my aunt, decided to create a scholarship uh, for Big Brothers Big Sisters that would benefit uh, little brothers, uh, specifically rising eighth graders, uh, because we saw that that was an opportunity where, uh, with the right resources, kids could be put on the right path. And there were plenty of resources for high-achieving minority students around like 11th grade to get into college, but nothing for high school. So what I would say about the bike ride is that uh, I think at the time I went into it thinking that that was like a, a shortcut to an epiphany, kind of like I was, <laughs> I was 25 years old and I thought the conditions were right. Here I was going on this epic journey, biking 100 miles a day. Are you solo? Uh, with, with one of my good friends, a okay. guy I played rugby with in college, uh, who just got into law school, so was able to take two months off. And we were, uh, frankly, a little bit um, almost certain that on some mountaintop, we would have some kind of epiphany about what we should do in life, whether it was like, oh, I, I should become a zookeeper, or we'd be on the plains of Kansas and we'd have this revelation that like Lisa Scatterigi from Homeroom would be the one that I should marry. <laughs> and we were really frustrated because sure enough, uh, you can't. there's no forcing function for enlightenment, and we didn't have this grand epiphany. Uh, it was only, uh, to your point, 10 years later that we recognized that kind of the lesson from the trip, if we were to to take one was that anything, no matter how challenging, no matter how seemingly insurmountable, can be accomplished by breaking it down into a series of increments. And ultimately, when I reflect back on that trip, it was a series of, it was 55 days, and each day consisted of kind of 45-minute challenges. I'm not going to take a sip of water until I get to that tree. And your life became getting to that tree. Uh, or I'm not going to scratch this itch in <laughs> in my tights until <laughs> you know we get to you know that like you know uh, you know that house uh, up the road, and and we're able to take something again like uh, crossing crossing the country on on a bicycle, and it just turned into ten thousand kind of micro challenges, and so I think the you know the lesson there is that you know, starting a business same thing as climbing a mountain but can be broken down into the, you know, the 10,000 things that you need to do right. Uh, and that's probably the lesson that I draw from that. How long did you run that zoo for? Uh, the, the Never actually start? happened. Right? Oh, so False epiphany. <laughs> <laughs> you started your career um, with like bigger media players, um, Digitas, and then you, know, you left to join Thrillist, and you were one of the first employees at Thrillist. But this is like, this is 2006, right? And so it's like a totally different world. Um, you know, in terms of digital advertising and the like, um, what 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 led you to lead to leave like this media juggernaut for a totally unknown entity? Uh, well, I think I was a, a round peg in a square hole even then. So my senior year of college, uh, with a partner, started a print magazine, and so that was kind of my entree into entrepreneurship, entree into media. But this is uh, 2002, and so these were kind of like the last days of disco for print. Um, and we developed, it was a magazine about parties and celebrations, not who's out with whom wearing what, but 
using uh, celebrations as a common theme for broader human interest stories. And the front of the book stuff was like new bars and restaurants and events, not too dissimilar from what Thrillist ended up becoming. Uh, and we ended up partnering with the W Hotel Group to get distribution for the magazine in their rooms and lobbies. And so had a had a big, two years of experience in media, you know, from like 22 to 24. And eventually W pulled out and we ran out of money and we are up Schitt's Creek. I don't know if you can edit that out later. No problem. Or if that's even considered <laughs> in today's age, uh, <laughs> improper language. Uh so re- recognized that I needed to get a proper job at that point. And one of my advisors was a general manager at Elle Magazine. And she said, hey, we have a custom publishing division within Hachette. And it was pretty similar to what we were doing, building a magazine, having a corporate sponsor. So that uh, was Hachette. The Hachette gig ended with uh, the whole thing around my aunt and the bike ride. And then when I got back, recognized that I still needed a proper job. I thought that I was going to work in a management training program at Paramount. So I had actually interviewed before going on the bike ride with uh, the president of Paramount uh, in New York, and I told him that um, I was planning on coming to L.A. in two months uh, by way of bicycle. And he said, great, uh, I'll see you on the other side. And so I saw him on the other side with a uh, considerably longer beard. And I'll be there right away. I'm leaving now. Right, I'm leaving now. I'll catch you in the 55 future. 55 days, I will be there at your door. Yeah, like FedEx the o'clock. suit. Yeah. And my friends convinced me <laughs> once I got out there, like, no, you can keep the beard. Like, they're a storytelling organization. They'll get it. They did Castaway. And, <laughs> they did Castaway. Uh, and there were a couple Wilson moments on the trip. Like, I, was de- I definitely talked to myself, had my own version of Wilson. But uh, so anyway, getting to, coming to Thrillist was kind of a return to form. I wanted to get – I knew after the experience at Hachette, after the experience at Digitas, that I wanted to get back into media this time, again, circa 2005, 2006, I knew getting into print wasn't really kind of the right direction career-wise. So some kind of digital media uh, venture and through a series of connections ended up meeting my uh, business partner, Ben, at Thrillist uh, right uh, when the product launched. And uh, that began a kind of a great seven-year journey together. I got to back up and ask you this question: How, how does a twenty-two-year-old convince the W to put their magazine in? I'm assuming hotels across the cold country. call. Oh, so we just started with New York hotels. Okay, uh, but a series of cold calls. So uh, I went to Brown, uh, graduated two thousand three, and when we were kind of hatching this idea for a magazine, we knew we wanted to circumvent uh, newsstand distribution and all the costs associated with that. Uh, this is when Talk, Tina Brown's magazine had launched. It was like a $40 million uh, adventure. And we were reading about this in the trades as seniors in college. And we knew that we had to do something a bit more clever. And we thought that one vehicle for that was getting one corporate sponsor that could also provide distribution. And it just so happened that this guy, Barry Sternlicht, who is the, you know, the CEO of uh, Starwood, uh, was a Brown alumni. So we just cold called his office multiple times. He forwarded a voicemail to someone who forwarded a voicemail to someone. We get a meeting with someone very low down on the agency totem pole. And four months later, you know, they're willing to do a test. It, it's unbelievable how many people on the show have succeeded through cold call and ambush, one of, the, one of those two strategies. Right. It's, it's, it actually can be quite... It's a place to start, if yeah. nothing else. Yeah, nothing to lose, right? You may as well, you may as well go after I mean, assuming you're being polite, you're not going to like damage, you're not going to end up on like Barry Stone's like watch list. You know, you can, right. you'll, be, you'll be okay with it. Worst, 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 the guy says no. And actually, a kind of a coda to that story. So leading into Thrillist, I mean, most of our initial relationships were started via cold calls. Um, and actually, seven years later, 
what began with a cold call uh, actually ended with me becoming the godfather to the recipient, the cold call recipient's firstborn <laughs> child. So in terms of developing customer relationships, uh, a cold call can go a long way. So this is someone who became a client of Thrillist. And who became a friend, who became a very good friend, and now I'm the godfather. Wow. So cold call, again, don't underwrite uh, or underestimate cold calls. Well, I'm, now I'm curious where our relationship is going to go. I'm like 10 years from now, <laughs> where are you and you I going to be? Uh, so, so um, well, I mean, that, that leads me to a question I'm, I'm actually curious about. Like, you know, you're an early employee of this pioneering firm. I mean, did, did, did people get it? I mean, you're talking about advertisers who, you know, I'm assuming big advertisers, are, are, were they able to, to say, like, yeah, okay, I understand what Thrillist is. It was like, I don't have a clue what you mean right now. We had the benefit of coming a couple years after Daily Candy. So, we right. were able to say, oh, we're the Daily Candy for guys, at least to those who are doing business with Daily Candy, like New York-based agencies. And so that at least al- allowed them to intuitively get it. Getting through the getting in the door and actually getting business was a whole other matter. Uh, in terms of how we got started, uh, the strategy initially was let's focus on local brands who had actually, local businesses in New York who would actually care that we have a, a newsletter that reaches 1,000 people. Um, and let's spend time developing relationships with uh, the brands and the agencies that matter that ultimately will reflect well on us, uh, Thrillist as a brand, knowing that it's probably going to take three to six months to see any activity there. Uh, and so we were able to generate business with like a two, four-week sales cycle locally, uh, local men's clothiers, furniture stores, businesses that might have been advertising in like local newspapers, uh, generating some revenue, generating case studies, proofs of concept, while then kind of taking any shred of proof of concept and bringing it to agencies and brands who are a little bit more uh, demanding and uh, and scrupulous in many instances. So, how I mean, how long are you there for before you can get to the point where agencies are starting to take your calls and starting to call you? It takes a long time. I, so, uh, effectively, you know, I was our first business hire. So I think our investors who are taking a flyer on me, uh, because there are probably other more senior candidates uh, in consideration, were probably looking at this as a three-month trial. And so it was day 89 where we were able to break our first agency business. Uh, so I was, I, was, I was freaking out. I mean, I practically slept in the office. And yeah, sure enough, day 89, you know, we were able to get a small piece of business, but it was something. And then, you know, not to say that things uh, snowballed from there, but things become incrementally easier when you can, you know, show that you've worked with other credible people. So you're managing, like, by the time you leave, you're managing 20-plus people. Um, and, you know, there are, I'm assuming it's a pretty young staff because mm-hmm. it's an internet business. Like, how do you... How are you developing as a manager as this goes? You know, you're you're like a, I think you're you're a liberal arts liberal, liberal arts kind of guy. Um, right. So, you know, how are you? Like, there's no playbook here for you. Is it just is it just just human nature? It's just like okay, I'll just I'll just become well, a good. Well, I manager? think the first thing you realize is oh, this is actually management is actually a very separate discipline, uh, and I think uh, oftentimes when people are promoted, whether they're you know a writer, they become an editor to manage people, a salesperson gets promoted to manage. They stop selling and they start managing sellers. Uh, some enjoy that that kind of matriculation. Other people suffer from it and prefer just you know, focusing on the task at which they excel. Uh, and so I recognize very early, okay, this is a very separate uh, set of skills that you need to, to develop. 
so on one level, um, you know, Ben, who's the co-founder, CEO of Thrillist, was also learning as he was going. And so I was kind of cribbing some lessons from him, uh, and he was getting lessons from our investors. Our investors were also incredibly helpful. Um, one of yeah, one of my uh, one of my uh, early mentors was one of our investors, this guy Bob Sherman, who actually used to run CBS Radio, incidentally. Mm. Uh, and he was he was terrific, and so he was kind of a source of wisdom and advice uh, every three to six months. Uh, so just between winging it, chatting with Ben, chatting with uh, Bob as a mentor, uh, did enough not to. Uh, you know, not to freak anybody out. So, what do, you, what do you think your what do you think your early Thrillist team would say about you as a ma- as a manager? How would they categorize your style? I, I've heard multiple times I'm the most difficult interview they've ever had, which I guess I would take as a compliment because we ended up hiring really really amazing people who all stuck around, uh, and it, many have gone on to do very impressive things, started companies. So I feel like we were able to recruit really really well uh, as a manager. Like I. This was very enthusiastic about what we were doing. I think that enthusiasm wore off. So I'd hope that uh, <laughs> whether other other parts might have been, you know, clumsy as I was kind of learning as I was going. It, hopefully, some of that enthusiasm was infectious, and and also we were we were living the brand, and the brand is about you know helping guys or young people live really fun lives. And so I was making sure that uh, the team was embodied the brand, and so we had a bunch of twenty somethings on the team who. We're more than willing to go to 50 uh, big events a year where we were sponsoring. Uh, they, they enjoyed selling to their peers effectively, other you know 20-somethings who were buying media from us. Right. We had Ben Hinman on the show who uh, who was at Thrillist running those events, I think, oh, I recall. Yeah. So I, had, uh, I hired Ben. Oh, yeah. Um, that guy's a riot. He's a riot. Uh, he, yeah, he's terrific. I, it's, I spent uh, a couple days with him at South By, and... Uh, yeah, you needed someone with that kind of manic energy to manage uh, those kinds of events and that the volume of events that we had. Right, he's got that energy. There's no, there's no question. You opened the door here. So, what 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 was an interview with you like? Why was why was it so tough? You're a pretty easygoing guy. Yeah, well, I think I uh, I keep my cards close to the vest, and um, and Ben, I had every reason to be skeptical uh, about Ben in, in particular. <laughs> I'm not asking about Ben, but if you want to go down that path. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I just that's very fair. And, and we had other Ben, Ben Lear, the, the two of us had like oh, a good okay. cop, bad cop routine. I was a bit more kind of straight laced and stern. And Ben, because it was his company, was just really, really excited. And if anyone showed enthusiasm for his baby, he got excited as well. And I've, I've also seen this now, now that Fatherly is my baby. Um, I often, like my better judgment gets occluded when other people that I'm interviewing kind of show enthusiasm for the brand that we've built. And so I'll rely on uh, other members of the team to kind of filter through that a little bit, you know, to ask questions that I may not have asked or may have kind of glossed over because I was just, you know, happy to entertain a conversation with people who just loved what we do, you know, loved what we do. Gotcha. I'm, I was mixing up my bins, I think. Okay. Right. So, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so you're so you're saying that your 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 tough interview style, you've just kind of you've I think you've, it's, you've it's, laid, it's you've, fair. You've 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 you've, you've, uh, you've lightened up a little bit as as you as as you've uh, as you've entered that like I own this thing phase. Like you, everyone can be excited about what they do. I exactly. guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, we're talking here with Mike Rothman, um, and I want to bring you back to another story of another Mike, Mike McDermott, 
who was doing the invoicing for his small design firm in Toronto when he accidentally saved over an invoice that he was working on and lost the information. To solve his own invoicing problems, Mike founded FreshBooks. Today, FreshBooks is an easy-to-use cloud accounting software that helps small business owners get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster. With the FreshBooks reporting feature, you can whip up handy reports like profit and loss, tax summary, and expense reports, then share them with your accountant in a click. If you haven't filed your own taxes yet, you should get on FreshBooks quickly. And I mean quickly because tax day is coming up. If you work with your contractors, you can use the time tracking feature at multiple rates and monitor your, t- your team progress to know how and where time is spent. FreshBooks is offering Smart People Should Build Things listeners a free 30-day unrestricted trial. No credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com smart and enter smart in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up and you can take advantage of that free 30-day unrestricted trial. Again, no credit card required. And now back from Mike McDermott to our guest, Mike Rothman. So you, you, you leave Thrillist. I mean, was there, and presumably on, on pretty good terms because, you know, Lara Ventures ultimately invested in, in, in Fatherly. Um, but like Thrillist is a company that you help grow from zero to a hundred and that's million. Um, and you know, like, I mean, how hard is it to, to, to leave something that is very much your baby too? Yeah, it it was tough, but I also didn't have any regrets about it because it was about seven years. We had, uh, built pretty much everything that we had set to build and accomplish. And I felt like I still had uh, a lot of gas left in the tank, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of punches still to throw. And, at that point, it was a company of you know almost 300 people, and so necessarily, uh, the scope of one's responsibilities gets increasingly more limited. Um, it's still a very entrepreneurial company, but for someone who you know had kind of worn a lot of hats, I appreciated being in a position where you can still wear a lot of hats, uh, and decided I wanted to take a, another go at it. So started like incubating the idea uh, fatherly about you know, three four months later with the co-founder Simon Isaacs. Uh, while also working on a couple other projects. So worked with uh, the team at Betaworks uh, right after the DIG acquisition, uh, worked with them to develop a kind of a business plan for DIG, and then worked as like a, a CRO in residence at Betaworks with all the other Betaworks companies, uh, Giphy, Dots, Bloglovin. Also worked with the BarkBox team to develop a Bark Post, which is the media uh, property associated hmm. with BarkBox. And from all of these uh, experiences, drew a lot of learnings that uh, ended up informing a lot of the decisions that we made around Fatherly. So when you left, were you, was, was Fatherly like, mm, maybe I'll do this? Or were you like, no, I'm going to do these other things, but I am launching Fatherly? No, I was very much on, on the fence. Um, I think I needed to be convinced that this is a market that, uh, was, that we could serve and that was kind of ready to be, uh, to be served. Um, I remember thinking, like, this seems like such a white space there's got to be a reason why no one's done it before. So it was either like a really amazing white space or it was a graveyard of other missed opportunities or failed attempts. And talked to a bunch of other media executives who told me, oh, yeah, yeah, we looked at this space. Baby Center, you know, the, the co-founder and the CEO of Baby Center said, oh, yeah, we tried to reach men once. It didn't really work. Um, so all these things could have been very disheartening. And I credit my business partner with uh, really keeping us focused and being convinced uh, that there was an opportunity, in part because he himself was an expecting father at the time. Right. Um, 
and my experience going into this was someone who had kind of evolved with the Thrillist audience into this kind of post-Thrillist environment, someone who now has other responsibilities other than to himself, and thought, you know, there, like intellectually, there seems like there's a real there there. Talked to a lot of marketing partners that we worked with, and they also kind of echoed this idea that, yeah, reaching kind of men entering parenthood is like the equivalent of like where we were 15 years ago with a multicultural audience. We know they're growing in importance, but we just lacked the the wherewithal or the scale to to talk to them in any meaningful way. And I thought that was compelling. And but what's interesting is that you just I mean you said it yourself. Like your partner was about to become a dad, and you were not about to become a dad. And I'm, I'm assuming you're still not a dad. Still not uh, a dad. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and and uh, I was thinking if you are a dad now, then that would happen quickly because I saw uh, I saw something on Harry's uh, a blog post of you with a with a girlfriend. I think that was posted like a couple months ago. So right. I was like, wow, either your girlfriend's be shocked that you're a dad, or managed you managed to defy science. Um, but uh, anyway, enough of that that, uh, <laughs> that digression. The uh, is it? I, I mean, obviously, it wasn't crucial for you to be a dad because the site's going and it's got a, a readership. But I mean, do you, do you think to yourself, hmm, if I was a dad, this could be a lot easier? So I actually think it works precisely because, well, because of my background targeting men. Uh, so you know, working with a, a, the thrillist experience was obviously very informative. Understanding kind of how men respond you know, to media targeted to them. Uh, so I kind of I, I come in with uh, men's media experience. And my co-founder, Simon, who doesn't have a digital media background, has a more practical uh, background in that he's a parent and that. And so the, the two of us and you know, the editorial team uh, that combines kind of very firsthand practical experience with experience just targeting men in general, uh, it, that formula tends to be effective. And I think where other people may have gotten the formula wrong in the past is that they assume that there's this wholesale change when someone goes from dude to dad. And the insight is you're still the same guy that you were before. You just have a little bit less time on your hands and you have this other thing that's kind of begging for your attention and love uh, and money. And, and, that, uh, and that understanding was really important. So the fact that we, we kind of blend this like guy's sensibility with this responsibility of a parent seems to, seems to work. I'm curious, like, why, like, here's, here's this quote from you, um, which I found on an on a, on a interview with the blog. You're like, I think that being an entrepreneur really starts with identifying problems that you're best equipped to solve. Uh, you talked about how, how you guys are well equipped. Um, solve it you know, by marshalling the resources necessary to find that solution to help not just yourself, but other people that might have that same problem. Like, what is the problem that, that, a, that, a, that a, a new dad has at this point that you're solving? Well, so all of my friends were becoming parents. So I got to see this very, uh, you know, like anecdotally and empirically, these were guys who were having kids and didn't know what to buy. They knew there were like a thousand things that were being kind of foisted upon them. Oh, you got to buy this, you got to buy that. And so on one level, they didn't really know how they should be spending uh, their money on their kid. Everything from before the baby arrives to uh, as the, you know, the baby grows into a child. Uh, and we also noticed that there is this remarkable... Uh, kind of explosion of like really cool uh, consumer products that former engineers at Google and Facebook who are also kind of aging along this path were developing and thought like, oh, you know, there's like all this really cool innovation happening, but guys aren't going on traditional parenting sites to find this. 
So uh, a there's a real kind of real and present need in that. I'm hearing this from uh, friends and family that you know they they don't know what to do, uh, they don't know what to buy, and we saw that there was like this whole universe of new products. There was a whole universe of experts out there that hadn't been uh, collected into a single platform before. Uh, and that also informs our kind of editorial approach as we find dramatically overqualified people to give very, very practical advice. Hmm. So was that, was that the, was the initial intent of the site? site? Is it borne out or did users give you feedback which sort of slightly changed the direction of your site? I guess a nice way of saying, an easier way of saying this is, has the, has the, has the, has the site's content played out as you expected? Yeah, uh, I, I th- so I think initially we you know we had this idea that if you can combine product and service recommendations with insights from uh, a whole variety of, kind of life you know lifestyle experts, everyone from like the world's foremost sandcastle building champion giving you tips on how to build an epic sandcastle <laughs> at the beach, or a Navy SEAL guy from SEAL Team Five giving you tips on how to dominate hide and go seek at home to the Secretary of Education giving you tips about how to hack the pre-K admissions process. Like, that's interesting content. And we started testing this out uh, with like a weekly email that we just would put together on nights and weekends. And we started to see real traction. And that was ultimately the proof of, of concept. Where it's evolved is we recognize that um, there are a lot of guys who were, you know, as soon as they have a kid, they kind of discover their inner Hemingway and they recognize that like, they need an outlet for these feelings and these experiences. And so they'll write a medium post or they'll write uh, a a long Facebook message. And we wanted to create a platform that could invite a lot of these first person perspectives. And so that was an area that we didn't maybe initially expect, but but it's become a very big and growing part of the platform. I'm gonna read that. Uh, I'm gonna read that hide and go seek post. Although I guess I guess that's a, it's sort of there's sort of an irony there. If you learn to dominate hide and go seek, then your kids get aggravated because they can't find you. It's meant both for the uh, the parent and the child. There you go. Yeah. Okay. 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 I'll wait till my daughter can read, and then I'll I'll, uh, I'll, have, I'll have her read it. Uh, so, <laughs> so you what you raised two million dollars from a variety of, of VCs um, to start. Like was that was that before you were like was it day one you got the money in the bank or did you have to. This is probably after a year and change okay. of actually proving out the concept, uh, being personally convinced that this is going to work before going out and trying to convince, uh, you know, the world of strategic investors and venture capital. So we are boot- we are bootstrapping it for you know call it a year and a half. Um, personal funds, a lot of the consulting work would underwrite the the prototype that we were developing. We were able to recruit an incredibly talented writer. Uh, we were fortunate to catch him uh, as he was leaving a full-time gig and kind of enjoying freelance work. Uh, we needed to pay him. We needed to, frankly, keep him off the market. So we ended up taking on consulting work uh, with, uh, with with a company that was actually very uh, kind of adjacent to what we were building. It was a, an organization called The Thousand Days that focuses on nutritional health for, uh, for women and infants for the first thousand days of the kid's life. Hmm. And we were able to apply our expertise for them, and in return, they were able to help effectively underwrite our early prototype development efforts with Fatherly. And so use that to sustain ourselves f- through the prototype phase into the fundraising phase. So what, is, what does the $2 million allow you to do? Like, wh- where, does that, where does that take you, and, and why, you know, where are you that you can't go without it, I guess? It's, it's a matter of, I think, well, A, it buys people. Uh, and it buys um, time, effectively. Like we could have, kind of hacked away to kind of keep this going, 
um, by kind of cobbling together, you know, small like kind of consulting clients here and there, or figure out other ways to, to generate revenue early on. But we wanted to, for example, we, we identified 2,000 topics uh, based on just a high volume of ser- search inquiries that people ask the internet pretty frequently and pretty regularly from week four of pregnancy to the end of year two. And we knew that what we were building was going to combine uh, content that is optimized for social and social media distribution with content that's ultimately optimized for search because there are only so many questions that you'd publicly ask Facebook and there's other questions like, oh, shit, what do I do when I drop my baby that you might ask Dr. Google? Uh, and quite a few people ask that. And there are, again, about 2,000 topics like that that we wanted to cover in a way that you know, departed from maybe the kind of the clinical or the kind of the, you know, the dry uh, manner in which that content would be presented on other sites like a WebMD. And we wanted to infuse it with more of like a men's lifestyle Element without diminishing the credibility of the responses. So, but in terms of in terms of what it gets you, does it get you, so it gets you a bunch of writers? Like it gets you more content. Is gets there? us people. Yeah. So it gets us people. <clears throat> Pardon uh, me. It it buys us runway, um, and we're at the point now where we you know, we've been profitable for the last two months, and. You know, we are kind of you know, debating as we like as as audience scales, as our revenue operation scales, as uh, sophistication around the product scales. You know, what that means in terms of fundraising. Um, you know, can we continue to you know to run just based on revenue alone, or do we need you know, additional capital? Uh, because one of the other initial propositions is that we were going to d- uh, develop a commerce component on top of the content business. If we know what people are buying. Um, even just through kind of an affiliate program that we have and we're capturing data, we know that a large chunk of the audience uh, likes these particular categories and these manufacturers when these categories. And we know that they typically buy when their kid is between, let's say like one and three in these categories. Then we start, we're able to develop a commerce business uh, a bit more easily than if we didn't start with content first and we didn't start with this whole corpus of data about our audience. Talking to Mike Rothman, we're, we're actually talking about, about bootstrapping and raising money. And um, when you're an entrepreneur, you got to keep things pretty lean. And so if you need a website, why not do it yourself? And why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, you can get your site live today. It's simple to customize. Don't know how to code? No problem. There's no coding needed. Millions of entrepreneurs create their own professional websites using Wix.com, and the results are stunning. Wix gives you access to hundreds of customizable templates and easy-to-drag-and-drop tools you can get up and running today. You can go to Wix.com and sign up for an entirely free account today. No credit card required. Go to Wix.com today. Um, so I, yeah, so I'm I'm curious about we're talking about about profitability, and it's, it's amazing. So you guys are, you guys are profitable now. I mean, isn't that kind of like a, a heresy in the in the world of startups here? I mean, isn't there some benefit to you not being profitable? It was until this year, and then yeah, things it, changed. The things changed pretty considerably, and yeah. And so your venture capitalists are like, "Wow, nice to see. We're really happy you're profitable." Maybe that changes in in six months. Maybe the profitability changes in in six months, and maybe the you know, the, the wins change in six months, but. Uh, no, right now we're you know, we're happy kind of being masters of our own destiny, and uh, there are a lot of ways in which you know uh, additional capital investment uh, will help accelerate the business further. Uh, again, there's a ton of content that we need to produce, so we need to hire a bigger editorial team uh, to write, to manage writers. We uh, we have a product that we, we're 
that needs to evolve specifically in the area around personalization, making sure that your content experience uh, on site, on social, on email uh, directly reflects uh, the age of your child. Um, that's kind of a core part of the initial proposition. Uh, building that technology or implementing that technology uh, is capital intensive. So there's a lot more that you know, we could be doing. You, you've kind of done this dance before, like growing Thrillist. There's, this is kind of, forgive me that I've been wrong, but it's kind of the same model, isn't it? Um, of you know, sort of starting with email and and bringing people onto the site. And um, you know, have you, have you gleaned any lessons? Is there anything you're like, whoa, that's that's that I could, that I learned at Thrillist, and I can do that, you know, faster, better, different here. It's it's changed. I mean, the Thrillist business model has changed pretty considerably, you know, in ten years. So now it doesn't really rely on email. It used to be an entirely email-based business, probably for the majority of its uh, tenure. Um, and now it's much more of a kind of divert, like a social business. A ton of traffic comes from from search. Um, so I, what I would say is we're, we're learning a ton. Um, I actually, we have a team that, uh, you know, that's intensely curious. We put together these audience Illuminati events every two months where we get the very smartest people in audience development from across the industry uh, into a room with beers and food and everyone really just kind of trades tactics and strategies because the rules change all the time uh, and what constitutes success is often very relative and so what be better way to understand kind of how to you know what the benchmarks are than getting all the other players uh, in the space into a room uh, kind of opening up and, and sharing what's working, what's not working. So, yeah, I was, we were talking before about, like, you know, content and how things have been shaped and, um, you know, what, like, where, you know, you talked about the Google searches and the like, but, like, where are these ideas coming from? How is the site expanding and changing? So we have an intensely curious team um, that kind of just populates a Slack channel with a, an ever-growing number of ideas. Uh, there's obviously an editorial calendar, so you know, we use that as a, as a, as a framing mechanism. Uh, and we have a couple different offerings. We have a news offering that kind of takes all the studies that you see on a, on a weekly basis that typically populate to the like, most forwarded list on the New York Times, uh, and we contextualize that for an audience of new parents. We have this, what we call like a timed content offering, so all of the like, very age and stage specific content that we're constantly developing and expanding upon. So for example, if uh, you're at week 28 during pregnancy and your kid can hear sound for the first time, that's the big milestone. Uh, rather than just kind of offering six paragraphs about what's going on gestationally, we'll go out and actually talk to someone like CJ Ramone from the Ramones to riff on the topic about what should be the first music that your kid hears in the world. And so taking these developmental milestones and couching it in content that's is inherently more interesting, uh, that takes time. That's, like, as I mentioned, we've identified at least 2,000 articles kind of along that uh, time to content spectrum that we're constantly um, uh, updating and, uh, and developing. We have feature content where, you know, we'll do uh, kind of long-form uh, write-ups uh, with interviews, you know, talking to folks like Malala and her father about how to raise a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Uh, that's content that takes time. It's not easy just to, <laughs> to ping Malala uh, and get her on the horn. Uh, and then we have a whole offering of branded content that we've been developing that, uh, that's frankly been as good, if not better, than our editorial content, um, in part because we're working with really 
really great advertisers who have a, kind of a similar vision and, and mission when it comes to talking to parents. So similar question, is there anything that surprised you that dads just don't want to know about? You're like, wow, I really would have thought they would have known about that. I, I think it's in, in tone and positioning. Like no one likes to be told what to do. It's like no one likes to be given directions, uh, whether it's maps or whether it's how to discipline your kid. Um, that same principle applies. And so I think when we, you know, when we approach uh, a lot of these topics, it's with the attitude of kind of take it or leave it. And so our attitude isn't that we're the uh, you know, unassailable experts, but we know enough to identify the unassailable experts and we'll get their opinion on you know, topics that matter to you. So I read this other, this other quote from you, um, and I love this as someone who is hosting a podcast basically dedicated to de-romanticizing entrepreneurship and trying to make people realize that it's really hard. Uh, the, the only objection I have, to, uh, I have to how entrepreneurship is taught is that it's often romanticized. I think lately, certainly the last couple of years, being an entrepreneur has become romanticized in popular culture. There's the Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs, and your Zuckerbergs. And these are incredible people who've done really remarkable things. But I think that's created like a cultic personality where people want to become entrepreneurs. That's what they sort of think of being an entrepreneur. And I, I really couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, can you tell me about some of the, I mean, I, mean, I guess, you know, blow the, blow the door off this for me. Like, you know, how... how or, you know, mixing my metaphors there, I think, uh, you know, raise the curtain, I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, what is what is your day-to-day? -day? I mean, what what are the hard parts of this for you on a professional and personal level that, that where you're like, hey, this isn't, uh, if someone saw this, they would be be like, well, maybe I should really think twice about, about you know, what it means to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's, it's hard. So it, it, everything's on the line. Uh, you know, we have 15 investors who... Uh, are basically you know, banking on uh, you know, the talent and experience you know, that I've amassed, the team that you know, we've, we've put together. And so you know, you're driven by you know, wanting to do right by them. You're driven by wanting to do right uh, by uh, your, your readers who have increasingly like, come to you, like, who, for whom you've become a habit. And so you feel this kind of, like, deep obligation not to let your readers down. You have these marketing partners that have shown early faith and you don't want to let them down. And often, you know, those are partners that, like your readers, sustain the business. And so you just have this kind of constant anvil of stress uh, from all these stakeholders, no matter like what position you are, like everybody is, you know, stakeholders uh, and people to whom you report. Um, and you don't want to let those folks down. And sometimes that means you have to make a lot of personal sacrifices. They're friends, uh, very good friends that I just don't see that much of anymore. Uh, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to turn, uh, you know, coffee or drinks into a, a phone call sometimes, just to like hear their voice because I can't often, you know, get out and see them as much as I'd like to. Um, it's hard, and you, you feel that pressure every day. You feel that pressure at night. It's unrelenting. Um, it's over on weekends, and uh, especially as content is such a beast, right? It's just got it's to be. be fed. It's a beast, and it's not like we're selling widgets it's not like we have like, there's a very clear like i would love to start a SaaS business next like <laughs> you know the economics the economies of scale like are just a lot clearer with the content with a with a SaaS business versus a content business which is often like good taste consistently at scale mm. because you're dealing with ideas and it's hard to be it's hard to have you know a formula like kind of a coke formula 
for ideas and information, particularly when you're dealing with the most high stakes decisions that someone's going to make, uh, you know, i.e. The, the emotional, physical, and mental well-being of their child. And so it just feels like what we're developing, uh, just uh, there's a lot of consequence to it, and you don't want to mess that up. Agreed. I, I, I get that pressure because, you know, as a dad, you make this, you feel that pressure all the time, right? So you got to feel it for many dads. Um, <laughs> so how long, I mean, how long do you hammer away at the, at the dad vertical form? Is that, is that like, look, we just got to, we got to perfect this, this thing. Is there, do you have any, uh, any other ideas about un, unappreciated verticals that you think you can, you can go after now? Or is it just all hands on deck for this one? Weird uncles are next. We're going after weird uncles. <laughs> A lot, of, a lot of spending uh, power. Um, no, I, well, I think there's a lot more we can do here. I think by going after dads, we're actually we're accumulating a pretty large audience of, of moms as well. Uh, the content that we have isn't particularly gendered, and so going after dads is actually one way to differentiate in what's otherwise a pretty crowded mom market. Um, and increasingly, these decisions are being made together. Uh, and there's 4.2 million mom blogs out there, and certainly not the same number of uh, of dad blogs. Do you have a sense of how many there are? Is that like a re- proportionally? Uh, I, I, it's fractional. Right. That's um, interesting. That 4.2 caught my eye. I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen a dad blog. I know they exist, but yeah, they're out there. Some are very good. They tend to be very first person and very kind of confessional, and some are like yeah, very beautifully written. And these are writers who uh, will often contribute content to our fatherly forum. And yeah, we're the, we're going after this audience, which I would consider like the silent majority of guys who happen to be dads, who aren't creating dad blogs, who aren't you know beating their chest and uh, announcing to the world that they're dads. It's often to the extent that they publicly self-identify as dads. It's usually as like the last word in their Twitter bio. It's like entrepreneur, investor, like cyclist, dad. That's our guy. I got I got to check my my bio now and figure and figure out where that is. Um, that's that's great. So, I mean, are there any are there, you know looking back, are there any mistakes you made along the way where you're like, God, we could have we could have could have skipped that and and gotten to the end zone faster? Yeah, I mean, we we hired uh, a couple of people that didn't work out, um, uh, and I think probably the best thing we did this year is that we figured that out very quickly, and we had a very kind of bloodless process of letting those people go. It was not it wasn't disruptive to the rest of the organization. Uh, it was fair. Um, so, yeah, I think at this, at this stage, as we're building the foundation of the organization, the foundation rests on its people. And so the best thing that I can possibly do as co-founder, CEO, is just hire the very, very best people, make sure that we're pointing in the right direction, that everyone has the tools, and that everybody's sufficiently motivated. And to that end, I mean, becoming a, becoming a, <clears throat> turning the best people on board, I mean, what, what have you seen in, in you know, in your life, um, your, your 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 professional life since starting Fosley. Like how how have you changed as a as a as a as a manager? Uh, better perspective, um, probably more self awareness, and that's increasingly something that I look for in people that you hire. Uh, I would say it's uh, competency. You know, you look for competency uh, for you know, for the for the set of tasks that they're going to be doing. Curiosity, because especially in this industry, things change all the time and self-awareness, the ability to know when they're right, when they're wrong, when they need help. Without those three traits, you're not going to have someone who's going to succeed on it, on this team especially. Last question. I'm going back to the personal for the last question because uh, you volunteer with The Moth, mm-hmm. which is a podcast that I love. Um, and uh, I wish I could remember 
my favorite my, my favorite moth that now that I now that I mention it. Uh, but I'm I'm curious if you can recommend a particular moth story that you love. Yeah, there is a. I mean, I, I've I've been going to the moth for 13 years and have probably heard hundreds of stories. The one that sticks out uh, that's on the site is about uh, an astronaut, and already that's kind of unfair. Like if you're if you're an astronaut telling stories, you already have like a leg up on anybody else. <laughs> Uh, and he uh, told the story about how you know it took him like 15 years to even qualify to become an astronaut. And he uh, once he became an astronaut, he was focusing uh, for four years on Earth about how to fix one small problem with the Hubble telescope. They go up to the Hubble telescope. He gets on the wing, and something goes horribly awry. And I'll stop there. Okay, mine. I, I can't remember the name of mine, but my favorite one is the one. It's one about a guy who he owns a bar in uh, in the West Village. And he confronts. He is confronted by a gang, and oh, things. That's so. At, he actually spoke at an event that I hosted. It's that's one of the most dramatic st- is, stories, and certainly the most dramatic moth story I've ever heard. It's amazing. I, I, I think I just I, I listen to it. You know, I don't listen to it all the time, but I listen to it. I just happened to. Be, I was just blown away. It was amazing. Yeah, he he, he was the <clears throat> the victim of a of a gang initiation and almost uh, knifed to death. And then, as he's recovering from his w- wounds, he goes to uh, he goes home to uh, Wyoming. And on the the car ride to his parents' house, he gets in a dramatic car accident after just leaving the hospital. And that's where the story starts. God, it's unbelievable. Okay, let's leave it at that. I mean, I, I uh, so I want first of all I want to thank you for for coming on the podcast. You've got a you've got a fatherly uh, subscriber out of this as well. So amazing. You know, you got to go door to door to get these guys. I guess. And Brian, our our technician here, is also uh, he's been on the site as well. So uh, you're growing your readership by at least two today. That's great. But Customer I want to acquisition <laughs> strategy a bit out of a whack, but we'll take it. <laughs> but I want to encourage anyone who's listening to check it out. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of fun stuff on there. Uh, Mike mentioned a few articles. Um, you know, I, I spied one uh, today. It was something like everything you need to know about parenting in eight Snoop Dogg quotes. So I think... Uh, He's a great dad, as it turns out. <laughs> so I think uh, I think that could be appealing to anyone, dad or not. So check it out. And, uh, and thanks so much, Mike, for being on the show. No, pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. is a time of renewal so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com we make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact choose from premium blinds shades and shutters we even have options for your patio too Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.